Okay, this is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus, increment 195. Title, if we were to have one, like Melchizedek and not like Aaron. Like Melchizedek and not like Aaron. So we're going to get a little more involved in the minutia of exegesis, which I find to be very important because I always believe that minute exegesis yields to major insight. And so we will be getting into Hebrews 7.11 and into the paragraph 7.11 to 17 in this increment and in the following increment. And so we will entrust our spirit to be taught by the Lord. Father, we do entrust our spirit to you. We commit our soul to you, a faithful creator. We present our bodies to you as a living sacrifice so that we may serve you as a mature and effective priesthood at this time in history. And we pray that you'll grant us grace to perceive your son in this message. We ask it in his name. Amen. Hebrews 7.11, my translation, if on the one hand, completion, now that's a key word, if not the key word in Hebrews. Actually, the key word is Jesus, but we'll, the conceptual key word is completion, teleosis. If on the one hand, completion, teleosis, was through the Levitical priesthood. Now, the Levitical priesthood could not bring the people of Israel into what James Moffat, I've seen him quoted enough so that I actually got his book. It's now under public domain. James Moffat referred to as a perfectly adequate relation to God. The Levitical priesthood could not bring the people of Israel into a perfectly adequate relation to God. That's the point of Hebrews 7.11. One, and we'll be in 7.11 for a little while here. A perfectly adequate relation to God must involve sanctification. For the only suitable relationship of any rational creature to God the creator and redeemer is one of worship. That almost sounds like a thesis. Let me repeat it. For the only suitable relationship of any rational creature to God the creator and redeemer is one of worship. Appropriate worship requires sanctification. Sanctification is an important motif in Hebrews, just as justification was in Romans, or is in Romans. The angels, for example, are certainly rational beings. They are living beings who are subordinate to their creator, willingly, and worshipfully. The angels, rational, in fact, super rational creatures, worship God. They stand in the presence of the Father. In fact, of the angels of the little ones, Jesus said, they continually view the face of my Father in heaven. Matthew 18.10, that is certainly a worshipful view. 
In Isaiah's temple vision, in Isaiah 6, the prophet saw seraphim standing above Yahweh, and they cried out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of the armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. So it's perfectly rational to worship God the creator. In fact, it's even super rational to worship God the creators as the, as the angel shows us. I will say that again. It is perfectly rational to worship God the creator as the angels show us. You want to know what is irrational? Worship of self. That was the creature Lucifer's problem. And as you know, that kind of spawned a whole bunch of other problems. So it's perfectly rational, if not supra-rational, to worship God the Creator as the angels show us. God intends to bring us to completion, therefore, as worshipers of him in spirit and in truth. When Jesus said the Father seeks such to worship him, those who worship in spirit and in truth, he was saying, in essence, the Father seeks complete or perfect worshipers. Now here in 711, completion is not reached by the Levitical priesthood. That's the point. Later on in Hebrews, it says that the law, that's hanamas, the law, you'll see this in print. That's why I add print to the oral presentation so that you'll get a better, more well-rounded and more complete picture. So later on in Hebrews, it says that the law was never able to make perfect those who draw near or the worshipers in Hebrews 10.1. Perfection, perhaps completion might be a little better definition of the word, did not come via the Levitical priesthood. It did not come through the offerings prescribed by the law to the Levitical priests and archpriests. Therefore, perfection which is God's proposed goal regarding the sanctification of his people, perfection did come, hallelujah, through the once and for all and forever sacrifice of God's son. Next, let's consider the parenthetical comment. This is what kind of snagged me for several weeks, in fact, until I got a satisfactory interpretation of it. And we're dealing here with interpretation. Let's consider the parenthetical comment in this verse. Because right after, if on the one hand completion was through Levitical priesthood, there is rightly a parenthesis here. And the insert in the parenthesis says, the people received instructions concerning it. Meaning, the Levitical priesthood. So the sense here is, if on the one hand, completion was through the Levitical priesthood, parenthesis, the people received instructions concerning it, that is the Levitical priesthood, then this insert is very helpful to interpretation. Now, this insert, I call it that, is variously translated, and this is what caused the snag for me, it's translated something like, quote, for under it the people receive the law. 
Check your translation. It probably says something like that. For under it, the people received the law. As if it's saying, for under the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. And there is a sense where the Levitical priests were teachers. We find that out in the book of Nehemiah. It was the Levitical priests who taught, and they taught the law. So there is that sense. But this insert variously translated something like, for under it the people received the law, or on the basis of which the people received the law, or based on it, that is the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law. Now the problem with these translations is that the law, otherwise known in Hebrew as the Torah, was not given on the basis of the Levitical priesthood. God didn't give the law through Moses on the basis of the Levitical priesthood. And so those translations can be misleading. Instead, within the law, there were regulations concerning the Levitical priests. And more specifically, there was legislation, we could call it, concerning their appointment. So let's look at the sense so far. If on the one hand, completion was through the Levitical priesthood, parenthesis, for there were regulations concerning their appointment in the law, close parenthesis. We're getting closer to the sense. And I'll show this in the context also. The sense and the context are two very important principles of interpretation. So instead of saying that the law was given on the basis of the Levitical priesthood, as some translations misleadingly say, instead we should say that within the law there were regulations concerning the appointment of Levitical priests. Levitical priests were appointed on the basis of genealogical descent from Aaron. And that's the point being made here. The people were shown that the priests were chosen based on genealogical descent through Aaron, who was of the tribe of Levi. And therefore, no one was to operate or function or receive the office of priest outside of that genealogical, physical descent. And so the commandment regarding the appointment of priests is called a carnal commandment, to use the King James, or a commandment regarding physical descent. So the point is here, they had to be sons or descendants of Aaron to be priests, Levitical priests. That's what the teaching pastor is talking about here. And this is borne out in Hebrews 7, 15 to 16 in the context, which speaks of, quote, a different kind of priest like Melchizedek arising, listen carefully, not according to a legal command concerning physical descent, and that's what's actually being referred to in the parenthesis of 7.11. We're in the 7.11. There's a parenthesis in it. But by the power of an indestructible life. So Hebrews 7.11, that little parenthesis is setting us up for a contrast between the appointment of Levitical priests by physical descent and the appointment of another different kind of priest like Melchizedek 
not on the basis of physical descent, but on the basis of an indestructible life. What do we have here? We have the resurrection implication. So what's being juxtaposed for the purpose of contrast? They're putting, they're literally being put side by side. A priesthood like Aaron, a priesthood like Melchizedek's, literally being put door to door next to each other. So what's being juxtaposed for the purpose of contrast between priests like Aaron and the, the priest like Melchizedek is, quote, the commandment regarding physical descent, close quote, by which the Levitical priests and archpriests received their appointment, and in contrast with that, the power of an indestructible life by which the priests like Melchizedek received his appointment. The priests of the Levitical order were chosen based on their physical descent, which always ended in physical death and the passing of the baton, as it were, to another priest in the same hereditary line. Jesus, the priest forever, was appointed through the power of an endless life, meaning that his term or tenure as a priest has no end, just as his bodily life and livingness in resurrection has no end. Consequently, the first fleshly commandment, as it's called in Hebrews 7.16, was countermanded by the superseding oath-fortified oracle spoken by God the Father to Jesus, his Son. Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4. The different kind of priest, not of Aaron, not of Aaron's order, and the different kind of priest prefigured by Melchizedek before Aaron and who arose subsequent to Aaron was declared to be a priest forever. Not on the basis of a commandment regarding mere physical descent, but based on an oath-fortified oracle, remember that? Connected with Jesus' resurrection from the dead, remember that? In which he was clothed with an indissoluble, incorruptible, and immortal transcorporeal human body. So it wasn't so much priestly garments that he wore, but a, an indissoluble, indestructible human body that he wore that qualified him to be a priest forever. I want to show you the value of reading commentaries. I'm reading about eight or nine of them. And the, there's great value in receiving them because, in reading them because you glean certain gems from them. It's like mining for gems. William L. Lane. I think he spent about 12 years writing his commentary, and he has a bibliography that's as thick as most books. So he's done his homework, and so I think he should be recognized. William L. Lane. His translation gives the proper sense here, and his translation in, is this, parenthesis, 
for the people received regulations concerning the Levitical priesthood, close quote. That sounds better, and that fits better, in my view, than saying, for the people received the law, as if the whole Torah, based on the Levitical priesthood, or on the basis of the Levitical priesthood. That's just not true. Levitical priests did con convey the law and teach about the law, but the law did not come on the basis of Levitical priesthood. That's just a wrong translation. So once again, I love what Lane did here because he got the sense. And that's what the Levitical priests were commanded to do. Exegete the scriptures and give the sense. Nehemiah 8.8. That's what Lane did. Quote, parenthesis, for the people received regulations concerning the Levitical priesthood. Furthermore, in his footnotes, he observes, quote from Lane, the translation reflects the idiomatic usage, the people have received regulations concerning the genealogical descent of the Levitical priests. That's the sense of this parenthesis. Probably your translation, your English translation, has this parenthesis. Almost all of them do. The idea here is that the fleshen, F-L-E-S-H-E-N, turning flesh into an adjective, and it's a real word, or carnal commandment in question by which Levitical priests are appointed means that according to the law, the Torah of Moses, the Levitical priests were appointed by virtue of their physical or fleshly descent or a carnal commandment, as the King James has it in 7.16. On the other hand, we can't let the important inference pass us by here that the change of legislation regarding the Levitical priesthood there is also a signal of the changing of the law itself, the Torah itself. James Moffat, again, M-O-F-F-A-T, put it succinctly while also noting a comparison with Paul. He said, quote, the inference that the nomos, the law, N-O-M-O-S, Greek, is antiquated for Christians reaches the same end as Paul does by his dialectic, but by a very different route, close quote. Now, in my translation of Hebrews 7.11, the word for, G-A-R, gar in the Greek, is sometimes untranslated, and I think that's the best way to do it in 7.11. I chose to leave the conjunction gar untranslated in 711, as is sometimes legitimate if not necessary. For example, in 1 Peter 2.20, which should begin with what credit is there, rather than for what credit is there. I'm just saying that the word gar sometimes is left untranslated, and legitimately so. That's what I'm doing in 711. Consequently, the idea here is not that the law of Moses in toto, the totality of Moses' law, was given, quote, based on the Levitical priesthood, close quote. It was not. It is saying, rather, that within that law of Moses, there were certain regulations concerning how someone was to become a priest or a high priest 
in the Levitical order, like Aaron, who is the prime example. Not only here, but in Psalm 133, if you want to read that sometime. Again, I have William Lane to thank for clarifying this in his notes, another example of the value of reading high-quality, exegetical commentaries and their footnotes. Besides the commandment regarding the appointment of Levitical priests and archpriests based on physical descent, there are also within the Torah multitudinous regulations for the Levitical priests, especially regarding the protocol concerning the offerings they were to make. So here's my translation, bringing in all this insight for Hebrews 7.11a. If, on the one hand, completion was through the Levitical priesthood, parenthesis, the people received regulations concerning it, that is, the Levitical priesthood, closed parenthesis. The writer doesn't say specifically where the regulations concerning the Levitical priesthood are found, but it's easy to find multiple references to, quote, Aaron and his sons, closed quote. In Exodus 27:21, for example, the scripture speaks of Aaron and his sons and their responsibility, quote, to tend the lamp from evening until morning in the presence of Yahweh. This also has a reference to Jesus' priestly office where he is seen among the lampstands in Revelation 1 and 2 with the responsibility of trimming the lamps. And sometimes he can even take away a lampstand and remove a church in the sense that the church is no longer a testimony to the true gospel, has become something else. He removes the lampstand, etc. in Revelation 2.5. Moreover, this in Exodus 27, this responsibility to Aaron and his sons and to no one else was to be, quote, a permanent statute for the Israelites throughout their generations, close quote. So we can deduce from this that Aaron and his descendants were qualified for this priestly duty. In Exodus 28, 40, God gives instructions to, quote, make tunics, sashes, and headbands for Aaron's sons to give them glory and beauty. Hebrews this also speaks of glory and honor with which Jesus is crowned as priest. In the very next verse, God speaks of Aaron. That's Exodus 28, 41. He speaks of Aaron and his sons being, quote, anointed, ordained, and consecrated to serve him as priests, close quote. Speaking of the priestly garments, therefore, God gave a mandate that they wear them whenever they enter the earthly tent of meeting to serve in the sanctuary. And that this was to be, again, a permanent statute for Aaron and for his descendants after him. Exodus 29.9 speaks again of the ordination of quote, Aaron and his sons, close quote. In Exodus 29.10, it is none other than Aaron and his sons who are to lay hands on the sacrificial bull. In Exodus 30.30, the Lord says, specifically and very clearly, 
anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them to serve me as priests. Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is determined by genealogical descent from Aaron, who is of the tribe of Levi. So never are these injunctions given to anyone of another tribe in Israel. You can also look at Exodus 2944, 3019, 3021, Exodus 3110, 3941, and also Leviticus 735, and many more references. In fact, the book of Leviticus itself, notice the word Leviticus, in large part is called Leviticus because it contains legislation regarding the Levitical priesthood. So in one sense, all of Leviticus is found in that little parenthetical insert in 711. Now, I'll do a slight excursion here or excursus. This begs the question once again, when did Jesus become archpriest? And when did he supersede the Aaronic order? In one sense, Jesus was appointed a priest in eternity in anticipation of his once and for all sacrifice, his death and resurrection from the dead in the heart of human history. It is in this same sense that Jesus is, quote, the lamb that was slaughtered from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 compared with Hebrews 9.26. And therefore, this means the lamb slain from the, or slaughtered from the foundation of the world, means at least in part that the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross as the lamb of God and his taking away of the sin of the world or the sin in the universe, in one sense already actually preceded or at least accompanied the creation of the universe. And it was intended to be the means of the consummation of the universe as a new creation. In other words, the death of Jesus Christ in the heart of history and his resurrection from the dead as the slaughtered lamb has impact not only forward, but backward. So we call that a diachronic impact. Now I know that this is unfamiliar, but you have to introduce a note in a symphony that hasn't been introduced before until you can, so that you can introduce it again and again until it comes into a crescendo. And so I'm introducing notes into the symphony that you may not get or appropriate fully now because when you're dealing with eternal perspective and temporal perspective, that's a whole new kettle of fish. That's a whole new way of thinking. It's a whole new perspective. It's an entirely other perspective than we're naturally used to. It's a perspective unfamiliar to empiricism, to rationalism, to scientism, and to a lot of other isms, and also to religion itself. So the lamb that was slaughtered from the foundation of the world means that the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross as the lamb of God and his taking away of the sin of the world 
in one sense actually preceded or at least accompanied the creation of the universe and was intended to be the means of the consummation of the universe as a new creation. So to call Jesus the eternal archpriest is not a misnomer. It's not a wrong indication. But that the human being, Jesus, enacted the once and for all sacrifice in the heart of human history also means that the man Christ Jesus became a priest like Melchizedek. He became a priest like Melchizedek. And that he was appointed as such in time, in history, and in anticipation of his death, resurrection, and ascension into the Holy of Holies by virtue of his own blood. He was perfected. Now, what I'm saying now will be in print, and I think I'm going to put it in italic print because it's an excursus. It's an excursion. It's a kind of side trip, but one that will figure prominently later on, not only in our study, but in our life and livingness. Jesus was perfected as this priest by his self-offering. He was historically, formally declared to be this priest forever, like Melchizedek, after he had entered the Holy of Holies in heaven by virtue of his own blood. He was then presented before the Ancient of Days, and so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is one person with two distinct natures. As the sole mediator between the one God and all of humanity, he is God and man. As mediator, he is God and man as a single and distinct person. As archpriest, he is God and man as a distinct person. As such, he is a priest forever as prefigured in Melchizedek, who is said to have no beginning of days nor end of life. That's speaking symbolically in Melchizedek's case, but really in Jesus' case, Hebrews 7.3. In terms of his divinity, Jesus has no beginning of days nor end of life. So in terms of his divinity, Jesus has no beginning of days in the eternal sense. In terms of his divinity, Jesus has no end of life because as God, he has life in himself, John 1.4 and John 5.26. In terms of his humanity, Jesus has no end of life because having died a death in which his whole person experienced the wages of sin and then a physical death in his humanity, he was also resurrected bodily from the dead and is alive with an indissoluble, imperishable, indestructible, incorruptible, immortal human body. Endlessly. That's a little excursion. And I hope it provokes or sparks some eternal perspective in you. In any case, I find the sense that Lane gives here for the parenthetical insert in 7.11 satisfying. 
And it takes a lot to satisfy me as far as coming to a conclusion about a verse and its interpretation. And so this is satisfying because the argument leads on to a contrast between the genealogical descent of the Levitical priests and the indestructible life, capital L, of the priest prefigured in Melchizedek. And again, that shoots forward to Hebrews 7.16. For now, the author sets up the contrast by saying it this way, and this is my translation, Hebrews 7.11. If on the one hand completion was through the Levitical priesthood, the people received instructions concerning it, then why on the other hand, why on the other hand, was there still a need for another priest to arise, prefigured in Melchizedek, and who is not said to be in the order of Aaron. Let's omit the parenthetical comment and see what we have here. If on the one hand completion was through the Levitical priesthood, then why, on the other hand, was there still a need for another priest to arise prefigured in Melchizedek and who is not said to be in the order of Aaron? Now that's the punch of the question right there. Note the contrast here. According to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron. Like Melchizedek and not like Aaron. Another priest, another of a different kind, heteron, heteron, another of a different kind, not like Aaron. Like Melchizedek, of whom the inspired God-breathed scripture simply says he lives. And not like Aaron and the other priests, his sons and descendants, who are so constituted and appointed by genealogical fleshly descent, all of whom were men who died. They're men who died. Now, Jesus is also a man who died, but he died by receiving the wages of our sin and enduring them. And he died physically, but he rose again, and he lives forever. And because he did, we will. And I mean by we, all humanity. In fact, all creation. Now, that's what's being alluded to in the parenthetical insert. It's talking about specific legislation in the law regarding the genealogical descent of the Levitical priests. And it becomes very clear in Hebrews 7. If it's obscure, then look how clear it becomes in Hebrews 7, 15 to 16. My translation reads, in fact, I'm going to read my translation of 7, 15 through 17. So we're kind of skipping over a couple of verses, but believe me, we'll pick them up. Hebrews 7.15. And this is even more clear. Good teaching proceeds from obscurity to clarity. And this is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek arises. 16. Listen to this. Who doesn't become a priest on the basis of a legal commandment based on fleshly descent, but based on the power of a life 
that cannot be brought to an end. For it has been testified of him. Maybe tired of me repeating this, but the writer repeats it. It has been testified of him. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 17. Let's get back to 712 now. When there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the legislation concerning the priest. This isn't talking about a change of the whole law, but it is signaling it. It's talking about the change of legislation that makes people priests. And so when there's a change of the priesthood from the Levitical to the Melchizedekan, then the, the qualifications to become a priest change. They are no longer the qualifications of being a son or a descendant of Aaron through physical descent. The new regulation only fits one person, Jesus Christ, and that regulation is an indissoluble life. The power, dunamis, of an indissoluble life, which is resurrection. Therefore, we have very strongly here something I want to even emphasize more strongly in our next increment. The resurrection implication. The idea is that no longer... Does the legislation regarding priests and archpriests of the Levitical order pertain? Change of the priesthood, change of the regulations by which men are appointed priests. That which authorizes the priest after the order of, or I like the word prefigured by, Melchizedek, is the power of an indestructible life. We could also title this message the power of an indestructible life, but... That's going to come up again next. And so here is the resurrection implication coming forward again, which we'll deal with again more strongly in the next increment. The priest like Melchizedek was not made a priest after the regulations for priesthood in the law of Moses. With the change of priesthood from the order of Aaron to the order of Melchizedek, there was also a change in the law that said that a priest had to be of the human line of Levi through Aaron. He, this new priest didn't have to be. So you see how they're going. What he's doing is he's like a good Aikido master. He's taking the energy of the accuser that said, your Jesus isn't qualified to be a priest. And he's taking that energy and using it against the opponent because he's going to say, you're right. Jesus isn't qualified to be a priest after the order of Aaron through Levi. And he is of a different tribe but he is of the tribe of Judah, of which there was one whom God would say after the Levitical priesthood, you are a priest forever. So this writer is dealing with a real-life controversy and a real crisis that's facing his little messianic community that he's writing to. So, What is being set up here? And this is the importance of getting into every, the minutia of the guts of the actual writings of Hebrews, of this Hebrews document. What's being set up here is a contrast between the merely fleshly and the divine, between the earthly and the heavenly. It's a contrast that will become obvious in Hebrews 9 
where the tabernacle made by human hands is contrasted with the tabernacle in heaven which was not constructed by human action and isn't even of this creation, Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. What is also hinted at here, to be elaborated later, is not only the change of law regarding the appointment of priests, but the change of covenants from the covenant given at Sinai by the agency of angels and through the mediatorship of Moses, contrasted with the new, better, and everlasting covenant of which Jesus is the mediator and guarantor, both mediator and guarantor. And we're going to see that come up in Hebrews 8. Now we're back to the superiority of Jesus, the son over Moses, the servant, and of Jesus, the archpriest, prefigured in Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood as exemplified in Aaron. Should I say this? There's a lot going on here. So in closing, as we move to a close in this increment 195, to sum up, the law gave instructions to the people regarding the genealogical descent of the priests in the order of Aaron. And that instruction is simply that they be descended from the tribe of Levi through Aaron. If perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood or completion was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood, which was so constituted in connection with the law, then with the change of priesthood signaled by the rising up of another kind of priest, I said rising up of another kind of priest, Psalm 110.4, there would have to be a change of the law regarding priests. The law of their genealogical descent would have to be changed or better even, countermanded. This new and different priest would not be designated by hereditary descent like those of the order of Aaron or like Aaron, but by a life that goes on forever as prefigured in Melchizedek. But the change of this legislation, now this is important and this will be picked up probably around 718 of Hebrews. The change of this legislation also signaled a change of the law itself and the covenant at Sinai in which the law was given. This truth comes into evidence in Hebrews 7.18 as we'll see. Now the last part of verse 11 expresses the contrast which qualifies in this homily as a dialectic of contradictories. If you want to remember what that means, the first few chapters in Romans deal with that. A dialectic of contradictories between the order of Melchizedek and the order of Aaron in favor of the priesthood prefigured in Melchizedek. Taintoxin, Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek. Ukata Taintoxin, Aaron, and not the order prefigured in Aaron. The order of or prefigured in Melchizedek and not the order of or prefigured in Aaron. This priest would be prefigured by Melchizedek 
not by Aaron. Hopefully by now you can see that the initial readers or hearers of this homily could under, come to understand that one, they not only had an archpriest, but one far superior to Aaron and all his descendants, and two, to revert to the system represented by the Levitical priesthood at this time would constitute at least an act of folly and at most an act of apostasy and a complete neglect of the great salvation that is embodied in Jesus, who is now crowned with the glory of the King of Kings and with the honor of the great archpriest forever in the superior order of Melchizedek. How do we apply this on the level of our own time? Take Hebrews seriously, because our study of Hebrews is the way that we do not neglect our such great salvation, our so great salvation that is embodied in one Jesus, our Lord. Amen.